Let's now turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Of course, the context of our text is uh, the healing of uh, the lame man there by uh, the pool of Bethsaida and uh, the following engagement with the Jews who criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And then they sought to kill him all the more because he uh, identified his working with the Father's working and thus made himself equal with God. And Jesus proclaimed that, indeed, it is God's will that uh, that he, as the beloved Son, uh, be honored even as the Father is honored, for all judgment has been committed unto him. And uh, we take up our reading then this morning at verse 24 uh, through verse 30, which is our text for this morning. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last time we considered those uh, words of verse 21, that uh, the Son gives life to whom he will. And uh, we're given to understand very clearly in our text this morning that we can know now whether we ourselves possess that life or not. In verse 24, we have another one of those most solemn declarations of our Savior. It begins with the words, most assuredly, or verily, verily, truly, truly. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, by hearing Christ's word and believing in him as the sent one, such believers possess everlasting life. Such believers have already escaped uh, from judgment that is of condemnation. Uh, they have already passed from a condition of spiritual death into life. And so this marvelous, this tremendous uh, transition has already taken place. They've been carried over this, this vast gulf, this, this great uh, canyon of a, of a gulf. I don't know if any of you have ever stood at one or the other uh, rims of the, the Grand Canyon and viewed across, and off in the distance you can see the other side, and in between there is this deep, tremendous gorge, such a vast distance. Well, that's just a small picture of the difference that separates uh, sinners 
uh, from spiritual life. There's nothing but the power of God that could bring people across that gulf of misery and death into a new world of spiritual life. But that is accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom all should honor, even as they honor the Son. And then in verse 25, Jesus elaborates on his divine uh, authority and working with another most solemn statement, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That introduces those verses that we're going to consider uh, together this morning. Uh, verses in which where there's a kind of building crescendo to Jesus' testimony of his greatness. And that greatness is expounded in our text this morning as we learn that Jesus' voice raises the dead. And there are two ways in which he raises the dead. First of all, he raises uh, those who are spiritually dead. He raises them uh, to spiritual life by his voice. And we're given to see very clearly that this is a power of Christ that uh, is is demonstrated. It belongs to the present hour. He says the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Yes, we know that Jesus uh, would raise Lazarus from the dead, literally. He had been in the grave for four days. Uh, and that's kind of like a small preview of the next way in which Jesus raises the dead. That is, Jesus will raise those who are literally physical dead, physically dead, uh, from their graves. But it's also like a picture of the power of Christ uh, to give spiritual life where there was nothing but spiritual death. Because in terms of uh, the, the hopelessness and the desperation of people's condition, there is very little difference. Only divine power can raise the physically dead. Only divine power can raise those who are spiritually dead. Jesus speaks of that power. It's taught in many places in the New Testament. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, he made alive with him. We read in Colossians chapter 2. Or think again of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 7 where he says, even as you have given him, that is Christ, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Christ is the one who imparts eternal life, this spiritual life, and this everlasting life. And indeed, this power was revealed during Jesus' ministry. And that's that's how we are to understand uh, what he says when he uh, tells us that the hour now is. Because whenever his word worked faith in the hearts of people, that was a demonstration of his divine power. It's actually in the next chapter that the Lord Jesus Christ will say, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. When many departed from the Lord Jesus, when he proclaimed himself to be the bread of life, uh, and many took offense at what that actually means, the disciples, they yet clung to him. 
because they recognize that he has the words of eternal life. They recognize that he was the Christ of God. And thereby they showed that that word that they heard from the Savior had already imparted spiritual life to them. A life of faith. They believed in Jesus Christ. So it was already manifested uh, dur- during Jesus' life. And uh, it would be manifested in a far greater way as recorded in the book of Acts. When thousands of people at one time believed in him when the gospel was preached. And the whole book of Acts records the onward progress of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria throughout the world. And that's a story of what Jesus continued to do, as we know from the introduction to the book of Acts. And he continued to raise the dead by his voice. And that continues uh, down through history even to this day. It's a power that is at work today. It's a power that is at work through gospel preaching. The familiar passage in Romans chapter 10, Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe and how shall they hear without a preacher. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? In other words, it is through the preaching of the gospel that Christ is heard. Having heard him, Paul says to the Ephesians, and having been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. And so it's through gospel preaching that the life-giving power of Christ is exerted in the hearts of people, imparting faith to them. Deliver them from the blindness and spiritual deadness of our natural condition and bringing them to life in Christ. Preaching itself is, in that view, to be understood as an exercise of faith. At the ordination service this past week, I, I, I sought to encourage and admonish uh, now Reverend Matthew Vanderher word, the fact that preaching the gospel is an exercise of faith. Because it has nothing to do with confidence in yourself or confidence in your sermon uh, or uh, your opinion as to whether or not it's a good sermon and will be effective or whether you think it's rather poor and uh, your, your thoughts about it might uh, be disappointed in one way or the other. Because preaching is the means whereby Christ works. It's the means whereby Christ uh, raises the dead by His almighty power. I've heard, I've heard gospel preaching. Maybe I've used this illustration before, but I think it's a good one worth repeating. Gospel preaching is like uh, passing a magnet over a box of sawdust in which there are bits of metal. Okay? And when that magnet is passed over that box of sawdust, those little bits of metal will cling to that magnet. And the the preacher may stir up the box a little bit, but he passes that magnet. He doesn't reach in there. He can't can't tell who those bits of steel are. The effectiveness of preaching is in the power of Christ through that gospel magnet whereby he works so that his sheep hear his voice. I guess where that illustration breaks down is that it's nothing in those people that makes them to differ from others. 
Nothing inside them that makes them more attracted to the gospel than others. No, it's a divine work. They hear the voice of Christ. Now again, that's not some secret whisper in the mind. That's the truth of the message proclaimed, which by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ reaches the minds and hearts of people and produces a response of faith. Sometimes that response may begin very, very quietly. Maybe it may progress very slowly in terms of experience, but wherever it exists, the explanation is that life-giving power of the Word of Christ. Sometimes it's uh, experienced as it's described in, in hymn 431, where it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed the amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's the power of Christ that produces uh, faith. Preaching is an act of faith. And that means that listening also is an act of faith. Listening with the, with the right attitude. Doesn't put confidence in the minister. Listening in faith recognizes a great variety of different personalities and styles in terms of the one who brings the message. Different measures in terms of gifts. But listening to gospel preaching with the right attitude is an exercise of faith in the fact that God is able, not only to impart life, but God is able to establish you through the preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this power then that produces all the effects of spiritual life. Faith, repentance. Jesus described uh, that in chapter 10, where uh, identifying uh, his uh, believers as sheep, he says, uh, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And then later on again, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Through the word of Christ, faith and repentance, and that means justification, our full acceptance in God's sight for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that means also the end of sin's dominion over us. That doesn't mean that sin is eradicated from us, but sin no longer holds us as slaves to our lusts. But we're freed from that dominion, and we're enabled to fight against sin and resist sin and make progress in this battle with sin through the power of Christ. This is that first resurrection that uh, John, also the same author, John also speaks of under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 20, where we're given this count, account of Satan being bound for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations, right? That's the description of Christ's work and his ministry, whereby Satan, in a sense, fell from lighting, and the gospel went out and it was proclaimed to all nations, and Satan no longer held a universal sway over the nations of the world. But the gospel brought liberation and salvation wherever it went. 
even way up in northern Alberta, because Satan's power over the nations has been limited. He's been bound. And throughout the generations, throughout that figurative a thousand years, down through the centuries, a great multitude has been gathered, and many of them are now before the throne of God. This is the first resurrection, John says. Blessed are those, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's true of the saints that are already in his presence. It's true of those who have already partaken of that first resurrection because he's been raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're taught also in our passage that this is the power of the Son and His own divine life. Listen to verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Now this is a a rather short verse and there's too much here really to unpack in terms of the depths of its its meaning here. But uh, let us say that According to this testimony and the arrest of Scripture, we know that God has this self-existent, eternal life, life in Himself, life of infinite bounty. And as God, the Son possesses this very same life with the Father. But as the Son, which is emphasized in our text, He possesses this life from the Father, from eternal generation, as the eternally begotten Son. It's never as if a point in time that the Son was given this life. No, from all eternity, He possessed this same divine life, but as the Son, it was given to Him as the begotten, only begotten Son. So as one who is God, He possessed this life eternally with the Father, as the Father does, as the Son, He possesses this self-existent, eternal, bountiful life from the Father, eternally, and as the mediator. As the mediator, He exercises this life by imparting spiritual life to others. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The second man, Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Now that's just a very brief outline of things that might raise questions, but we don't have the time to fully uh, develop the significance of this tremendous statement. But indeed, it is a declaration of the Son's power to impart life as one who has life in himself, as does the Father. But at the same time, even as the reality of Jesus' equality with the Father is affirmed throughout this passage. This does not obscure, nor does it uh, remove from his testimony his mission as the sent one. And he speaks more about that in verse 30 when he says, I can do nothing of, of myself. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now when Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing, that's not a description of some inability that he has, but it's a declaration of the nature of his ministry. 
as the one sent by the Father who willingly came to do the works of the Father, to reveal the Father. He has no other mission than that. He does the Father's will. Yes, he has divine authority, but he has authority as the sent one also. That's what we hear also then in verse 27. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus' voice raises those who are spiritually dead to new life. And then secondly, his voice raises the physically dead uh, to resurrection life or judgment. This power that our Lord proclaims is uh, even more incredible uh, to the ear of unbelief than what uh, they initially uh, heard from him. And that's basically acknowledged in verse 28 when Jesus says, do not marvel at this. It's like he is, he is uh, acknowledging that they are, they are marveling. Now that doesn't mean that they're filled with wonder and praise. It may mean that they're just astounded. They don't know what to make of it. And they're very likely thinking or saying among themselves, what is he talking about? Who does he think he is? His voice is going to wake the dead? He has the life, the kind of life that God has? Unbelievers will not recognize the truth of who Jesus is, really. They really won't, they really won't come to grips with it when they're, when they're confronted with it. Because as they're confronted with it in the preaching of the gospel, what is the typical response by, by many? Oh, those are words, 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 religious words. The man might have some education and ability. He's very religious and he's talking about Jesus. And some of those things are kind of impressive and moving, but it doesn't lead people into the presence of the living Christ. It doesn't create a crisis in their hearts that compel them to a response of faith, or even overt rejection. So often people are just rather indifferent, rather ho-hum. Hmm, interesting claims. I don't know if I believe that. At least these people were amazed and they were marveling at what they heard. But Jesus' response to their amazement is to really double down. He says, don't marvel at this. There's more to come. And it's even more incredible and unbelievable and fantastic to unbelieving ears. He doubles down on his authority to literally raise the dead. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Obviously, there's a difference. In the first instance, he had just spoken of those who are dead. Now he speaks specifically of those who are in their graves. That, that refers to physical death. And he speaks of a power that he has over all who ever lived and died. And Jesus here is speaking of the one, uh, universal future resurrection. It is future. You notice that Jesus does not say, and now is. He said that about raising people to spiritual life from spiritual death. But he doesn't say, the hour is coming and now is when all those who are in the graves. No, no, no. That is a future hour that is coming. And it is an hour in which all those who are in their graves will be raised. There's only one general resurrection taught in Scripture. 
There's not one physical resurrection and then a thousand years later, another physical resurrection. That's what the dispensationalists would have us believe. Contrary to the clear teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's an hour coming when Jesus will raise them all from the dead by his voice. And it doesn't matter how long their bodies have been in the dust. It doesn't matter if they have been uh, literally reduced to dust or uh, reduced to ashes or consumed by worms or beasts. It's the power by which uh, he made the worlds and the power by which he is able to subdue all things unto himself that he will raise the dead. They will come forth, Jesus said. You see, Jesus not only judges, he brings everyone to court. And it's an irresistible summons. They can't run. They can't escape it. They can't resist the power of his voice. That voice that is described in various ways in Scripture. In in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. That refers particularly to the resurrection of the saints. Similar language is found in Matthew 24 with regard to this universal resurrection, where it says uh, concerning Christ's coming, the, the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to uh, the other. And then all will be gathered before him. Jesus has this power over all who ever lived and died, and he has a power to settle each one's eternal destiny. You hear that in Jesus' further description of this general resurrection, where he says, They shall come forth, those who have done good, to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, to the resurrection of condemnation. Those who have done good, to the resurrection of life. The completeness of their redemption, even that redemption of their bodies, which will coincide with their full entrance and enjoyment of that eternal life that they already possessed during their earthly sojourn. A spiritual life, again, notice that was evident in that uh, they had done good. They had been made spiritually alive by grace. By grace you have been saved, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And yet they had walked in those good works which God prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. And so their lives bore testimony to the reality of their spiritual life. They did good. Again, we've noticed on other occasions recently that uh, salvation indeed is entirely by grace through faith. But judgment is according to works. Not according to whether or not those works are perfect or without sin. But judgment is according to works in the fact that the final day will disclose the difference between those who truly believed in the Lord and those who didn't. And it will be manifested by the lives that they've lived. Jesus makes that clear here in this passage. In contrast to those who have done evil. They too will be reunited with the bodies in which they lived and in which they sinned during their short earthly lives. But for them it is to suffer 
in body and soul the the fire that uh, shall not be quenched as Jesus speaks elsewhere. John described the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire, who will gather his wheat into his barn, but will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. We have similar words of our Lord Jesus in this passage, a passage which uh, very closely, in many respects, resembles that prophecy of, of Daniel chapter 12, which will be fulfilled in uh, the first few verses, where it uh, says that your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is that final judgment and the final separation that will be effected by the Lord Jesus Christ himself on that great day, that hour in which his voice will call all people from the dead and there will be this eternal separation. Yes, that's something to marvel at, isn't it? It's something for those Jewish leaders to take to heart. And that leads us, finally, congregation, briefly by way of some application. Shouldn't be hard for us to imagine how outrageous Jesus sounded to the Jews. They, they couldn't be neutral. They couldn't be indifferent to him. It's, it's unthinkable. In the face of such claims spoken among them, these religious leaders of Israel, yes, they were, they were words. And in one sense, we might say they were, they were just words. And they were words spoken by, obviously, a rather ordinarily looking man. Uh, they weren't spoken in the midst of thunder and lightning. They weren't spoken from some exalted throne. They were spoken by one whom they knew had grown up among them. And yes, these words, they, they, they spoke about, about invisible things. Imparting spiritual life. Well, that's, that's an invisible kind of thing. Raising people from the dead. Well, that wasn't happening. He's talking about something that, that he claims will happen in some coming hour. But in the meantime, here is this man. He's just speaking such words. But by such words, making such claims that it's unthinkable that they would be indifferent. It's unthinkable that they would go, oh, hum. Oh, interesting. Oh, I don't really believe that. Of course not. They were the kinds of words that really presented them with uh, with various options. You've, you've heard it expressed before. I think it's valid. One of those op options would be to conclude that this man is just entirely deranged. He has lost his mind to talk this way. The other option is to think this man is evil. This man is a blasphemer. To make such claims of equality with God, to make such outrageous claims, to have such power, he deserves to be arrested and tried and executed as a false prophet. Or he is, as he says, the son of man. 
He is that one who is foretold in the book of Daniel, who will come with the clouds. He is the one who fulfills Scripture. And there was enough testimony for them to receive and believe that and to humbly marvel with wonder at the grace of God in fulfilling His Word to send His Son among them to truly manifest God, to reveal the way of salvation. Those who believe in Him shall not come into judgment. Actually, we could read verse uh, um, 30 in this way. Verse 29, rather. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? Because it's the same word. It's translated condemnation here. But it's the same word that is translated judgment uh, earlier. Where it says, those who believe in him will not come into judgment. Well, that doesn't mean that believers will not appear before Christ. But that appearance will not be a terrifying, dreadful appearance in which they will face condemnation because they have passed from death into life. That great gulf has already been breached. And we know how it's been breached by this very one. By this one who would himself enter into judgment. That's the meaning of Calvary. Christ faced the judgment of condemnation for sin. He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might be the righteousness of God in Him by receiving and believing who He is and what He has done by such a response of faith as Jesus so wonderfully makes clear in verse 24. Believers have eternal life. They will not enter into judgment. They have passed from death to life because of what Jesus did on behalf of all those who put their trust in them to save them. He carried them across, brought them to the other side, peace with God, acceptance, facing judgment without terror. And the voice that calls to life today is a voice of grace. It comes to sinners in their guilt and in their need with the same promise that everyone who believes in the Son will have life. With the same promise, with the same authority, with the same critical uh, importance. In other words, it is no less sensible for anyone to be indifferent under the preaching of the gospel than it would have been for those who heard Jesus make these claims. Because it's the same Christ by whom that message is proclaimed yet today. With the same authority that confronts everyone with a crisis, you might say. Everyone with a kind of inescapable option with respect to what are they going to do with such claims. It will not do to say, oh yeah, I believe that. I hear about it every Sunday. And not be transformed by it. Because that shows that despite whatever nominal religious opinions and professions to faith they may have, they have not yet become a new creature. In Christ Jesus, they have not yet been made alive. They have not yet been brought into a living relationship with this Christ in whom they trust, whom they follow, whom they love, whom they live for. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, 
then all who live should no longer live unto themselves, but for him who died for them. That's the crisis that gospel preaching confronts us with every time. And as we hear that and we say again and again, Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, my only confidence and hope is not in myself, but in your mercy and grace and your power, your power to impart more and more that power of spiritual life and faith to preserve and keep me according to your promises. That's a response of faith to the gospel. Respond, response to the revelation of this manifestation of the love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen.